So I can't remember exactly why this notion popped into my brain this week and not any other week in the last three years, uh, but it did. <laughs> and it's simply this. This is the Bible. This is a prayer book. And my simple vision, my simple heart is to take these two books and aim them at the unredeemed. The unredeemed in my heart, the unredeemed in our hearts, and the unredeemed in the community around us. It's really what I'm all about. And it's what I think God simply is calling all of us to be and do. Take his story, take these beautiful prayers and colics and ways of ordering our worship and life together and just aim them at a transformed life, at a transformed church community and a transformed bigger community. And when we get to our readings tonight, it gets us right to the heart of that matter. Because there's nothing more fallen in our world than issues of power. And that happens in city councils in Costa Mesa. It happens in meetings of the school district in Costa Mesa. It happens in Washington, D.C. It happens in corporate board meetings. It happens, as we heard a couple of weeks ago from Mike McNichols, in marriages. It happens in power plays between children and their parents. And power is at the basic notion of whether it's ancient slavery or present day workforce relations. Right at the heart of that is issues of power, of who is going to have control. So when we read something like we did in our Ephesians passage a couple of weeks ago, which if you were here, remember Mike said, really provides kind of like a banner through which like the banner is be subject to or be in mutual submission to, that provides like a banner. And, or if you, if you think more linear of like an outline on a page, like Roman numeral one is, you know, be submissive to one another in Christ. And then like point A would be, and here's how it works in marriage. And point B, here's how it works with children and and uh, parents, and point C would be, here's how it works out in what we would call today the workforce or the workplace. So this notion of being in submission, of being subject to, you can see how that draws us right into this very deep issue of our apprenticeship to Jesus. It draws us right into the issues of power, of who has it, how do you get it, how do you use it, how do you exploit it to get your way? It just draws us right in to one of the biggest issues of what it means to have a transformed heart uh, in Christ-likeness. So speaking of Christ-likeness, what does ultimate power do? What is he who had, and in fact is ultimate power, what did he do? The second person of the Trinity who spoke along with the Trinity and said, let there be light, and there was light. I mean, energy as we know it today, quantum physics as you th we think we understand it today, the material world, energy, atoms, nuclear stuff all over my head, but whatever that is, that energy was spoken to existence by a person, 
I mean, talk about ultimate power. He just spoke and it happened. Like you might twirl your hair and it happens because you intend to do it. Well, God just intended that there be light, energy as we think of it today, or particles or waves or whatever the heck it is. He spoke and it was there. So what does ultimate power do? Well, we find out in John's story of telling Jesus' last supper with his friends. You know the story. He took bread and he broke it. And he took a cup of wine and he blessed it. Except for before that. He noticed, of course, it would have been a lower table. And his first friends were reclining around it. And he noticed something. And so he got up. And he went to the back corner of a room and he got a pail of water and he brought it over and he took off his outer garments and he washed his disciples' feet. Here's what the text says. Jesus, knowing from where he had come, the councils of the Holy Trinity, and knowing where he was going, got up and washed his disciples' feet and said to them, see now, I have given you an example to follow. Now, sometimes I think we hear that as a mere moralism. I think we tend to hear Jesus that way all the time, that he's just sort of spouting moralisms. And it's wrong. He almost never is. I mean, I can't think of a case where he is. Maybe he does somewhere, but I can't think of one right this moment. But that's certainly not what he's doing there. What he's doing there is saying, this is what power does. Power uses itself for the good of others. Power lowers itself to the degree that it needs to to make itself useful to others around it whom that person of power loves. Because love means to will the good of another. So love has all sorts of feelings attached to it. Nothing wrong with that. Of course it does. But it's not primarily that. It's primarily a posture inside us. And so Jesus' action asks us about the, the parts of our hearts. Are they redeemed or not? Like, how are you doing with reference to power? Do you find yourself fighting a lot at work about it? Do you find yourself fighting in the context of your marriage a lot about it with your children? This is what the passage is asking us to think about. It cannot be reduced to a mere moralism and it can't be reduced. I think Mike said something about this too. You know, kind of, well, should we have hierarchy in marriages? What about hierarchy in the workplace? Or should we have, as suggested today, kind of a mindless egalitarianness? Sorry for the big word on a Saturday night. Egalitarian just meaning everything's the same. Well, I'm sorry, but that's just not that way. Mindless egalitarianness doesn't get us anywhere. I mean, I'm an author. Five published books. But I don't know about the rest of y'all. I can differentiate between myself and Hemingway. This is not about we're all the same. So, you know, we've, we've now exchanged hierarchy for a kind of mindless egalitarianness, which fails to differentiate in any way. And Jesus says no to both of those things. 
when he says, I can notice the difference between me and my followers. I can notice that I have ultimate power and they have very little as standard human beings, fishermen and that sort of stuff. But he says, keeping in mind or noticing even that huge hierarchy, this is what you do. That's what forms the background to what Paul's trying to work out. Whenever you're working in the Pauline epistles and you come to these really hard Pauline things, I would suggest that you just always picture Paul in his head trying to work out Jesus. And what is the things that Jesus did and taught, we you know, in, in when he was alive, how does that impact these churches that Paul's basically a missionary church planner? He's doing theology on the run. He's doing ad hoc theology most of the time. Not always. You've got, you know, books like Romans and stuff that seem a little more kind of like settled, thoughtful theology, but much of the time it is theology on the run and him trying to work out not these moralisms of Jesus, but this life view, this worldview, these big overarching things that Jesus taught. Paul's trying to work them out in churches and families and workplaces and that sort of thing. So actually when Jesus said, see, I've given you a model in that upper room, he's only explicitly teaching what he'd modeled in all of his interactions with people. He sat in public with a woman of ill repute at a well. He talked to a, con a confused Pharisee, Nicodemus, in love. He said to Zacchaeus, notorious tax collector, everybody hated, come down, I want to have dinner with you. He's only there explicating or making more obvious what he had lived. So the kingdom of God then that Jesus invites us into to derive our life from it and live it in it is a contrast society. And it demonstrates a completely different economy of power, a different economy of relationships and life. So that life in the kingdom of God as Jesus taught is using legitimate power for the good of others, or as Paul talks about, in places where there's this, these deep, hard hierarchies in Paul's culture, Paul calls us to a kind of mutual submission that's not based in 21st century notions of hierarchy and egalitarianness. We cannot read the issues of today into Paul. We have to take Paul at his word dealing with the churches around Ephesus who were trying to follow Jesus in the context of their culture. Now, from that, we might be able to, you know, somehow get some lessons for our own culture, but we can't read our issues into his. And his issues aren't 21st century feminism. And they're not 21st century concerns about democratic capitalism and how it works out in the marketplace. Those aren't Paul's concerns. He had his own legitimate concerns. Mike last or a couple of weeks ago explained the ones about gender roles and what was happening with men having all the political and historical and religious power, women having kind of the popular power with Artemis and all that, and how that had just created these enormous tensions in that culture. So what Paul and Jesus are calling us to here is a transformational call to, to a dynamic, love-oriented life that's countercultural. It's actually the giving up of one's personal rights. Jesus could have sat there and said, hey, who was the last guy I picked? I can't remember. Oh, it was you, Bartholomew. Go get the tub of water and wash our feet. Right? Couldn't he have? 
He spoke the tub into existence. He spoke the water into existence. Didn't he have the right to say, hey, the least of you, go get the bucket of water and wash everybody's feet, but he didn't. He laid down his life as the water creator, got the water, and washed his friend's feet. This is the kind of thing that's going on in Paul's head as he's trying to figure out how does this apply to marriages and how does this apply to children and their parents and how does this apply to slaves and masters in the workforce. And he's suggesting that it's in mutual submission, the giving up of one's personal rights to power and giving preference to the lives of others, serving them out of love rather than grasping tightly to the right to control. See, that's what the men were feeling. I have the right to control. And the women were saying, well, yeah, you might be the head, but I'm the neck. And I can turn that head and I'll fight you every minute about your right to control. And Paul's saying something has to transcend this. There has to be something that breaks the power of the cultural notions of maleness and the cultural notions of femaleness and how they fight with each other. Something has to break the power of this, Paul's saying. And so he suggests there is something that transcends this, that transcends manipulating, oppressing out of self-interest. And he doesn't give us a formula. That misses the whole radical nature of Paul's call to us. What he gives us is this transformative idea of mutual submission. And says to us, basically, again in that big headline, that at the top of the cultural hierarchy, whether it's men or parents or slave owners or masters, supervisors, CEOs, he's saying that even if you think you properly sit at the top of some hierarchy some way, there's a way of sitting there. And that way of sitting there is like the headship of Jesus who, while he could have demanded his own rights, lived a life of sacrifice and self-giving and patient restraint. Come on, he had Judas in his posse for three and a half years. Think he didn't know what was going on in Judas's heart? He had Peter in his posse for three and a half years. You think he didn't get it? James and John had horrible misunderstandings about Jesus and power. They saw a community who heard Jesus' teaching and saw his works and didn't turn and follow him. And they stopped Jesus and said, should we call down fire from heaven on these guys? Smoke them. Can you hear just Jesus going, oy vey, you know, like, these guys just don't get me. They don't get what I'm up to. That is not the way I use power. So this is one of those issues I think of what's really happening in the spiritual world that if we're thinking straight would send a little shiver down our spine for now and and has been for a long time and for now God lets people have their way for now for whatever reasons that exist in his wisdom and love he allows he allows rival kingdoms he allows the kingdom of darkness to remain in my heart, in our hearts, and in the community around us. He allowed it in Judas's heart, in Peter's, in James and John, and you know they all had something like this going on. But he who was ultimate power practiced restraint. 
gentle self-control. And so now Paul, trying to apply his master to what's going on in these, this area of Ephesus, says, I think I see what should happen. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Fathers, you who have ultimate and sovereign control over the family, literally to punish to put in chains. They could take their own children if they didn't like them and put them in the field in chains and make them work like slaves and they could kill them. Literally. If a baby was born and deformed or something and the father didn't like it, he could execute that baby. If, if somebody just got too mouthy with a father, a father could execute them. There's a, some Latin phrase for this that I can't remember. So the the ultimate sovereign right of the father. And Paul says, fathers, don't exasperate your children. See how he turns this around? Don't exasperate your children by coming down hard on them. Take them by the hand and lead them in the way of the master. Care for them as God the father cares for you. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear, with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Serve wholeheartedly as if you're serving the Lord. Now, on the one hand, I know we read this and go, how the heck could the New Testament be so wimpy on the institution of slavery? Because again, we're reading our, you know, 18th, 17th century issues into this, where that's not Paul's issue. Paul's issue is, God Almighty washed your feet. Slavery was universal in this day. For you to have any way to understand slavery in Paul's day, just understand this. Think of it like electricity. Think of trying to live life without electricity. Scholars estimate that around Paul, there was maybe 60 million slaves. They were like what made the world work. Many of them were Christians. Increasing numbers of them were believers, but again, that's not what's in Paul's head. What's in Paul's head is in this institution that exists in the world where sometimes slaves were treated nicely and respectfully and even generously. Others were treated by that ultimate father figure and were mutilated, had their teeth busted out, were beaten, were treated like animals or worse, and some of them killed if the master just didn't like him for some reason or her. Paul's issue is, I think I get how this works. What if, no matter where you are in a given hierarchy, we were just practicing Christ-likeness to one another? I wonder how that would work. That's what's underneath that thing of mutual subjection, mutual submission. So these practices, of course, are rooted in Jesus himself who as he embodied and demonstrated life in the kingdom said, as Dennis read to us tonight, he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life. And what James and John are missing in the gospel we read tonight is that they were trying to gain through power. They wanted to be, as Mike said, secretary of state and secretary of defense. They were trying to gain something. When they thought of power, they thought of gaining something for themselves. And this is what pollutes most of human life. It pollutes corporate boardrooms. It pollutes vestries. It pollutes marriages. Because everybody assumes that power is, first of all, a zero-sum game. It's like a pie, and there's so many pieces in it. 
So if I want more power, I got to take some from you. That makes you my enemy, my sworn enemy. Because you see, I need power. Because I have this thing in my head that I want to do. And sometimes I can even say God's called me to do this. So then that makes it really okay for me to take the power that you have and bring it to myself because now I can wrap it in this thing, well, God's asked me to do this. That's what goes wrong with power. That's what goes wrong with what's happening here. And that's what James and John were doing is they were trying to gain power so that they could then sit with Jesus. And Jesus then makes this startling claim. That's the way it is amongst the Gentiles. That's what you see in Herod. That's what you see in Pilate. Come on, that's what you see in the governors and the mayors of these cities and all the way up to Caesar. It's not to be like that among you. The way it's supposed to be among you is any one of you should be willing to get up from that table and go find the water and wash each other's feet. See, this claim is not so startling when you think it was uttered by the one who also said, for God so loved the world. Not just the beautiful babies, but the ones born maimed. Not just white people, but black people. Not just white people, but Hispanic immigrant, migrant workers, for God so loved the world. That word world in John does not mean a blue globe hanging out in space. It doesn't mean trees in the forest or rivers. It means for God so loved all the people of the world. That Jesus who said, I'm washing your feet. Well, of course, for I will your good. For God so willed the good of the world that he gave his only son. Or it's he who said, let the little children come to me. This is kind of a Mother Teresa moment. Remember that? When Mother Teresa at the prayer breakfast during the Clinton administration said, don't give your babies up, give them to me, I'll take care of them. That's kind of what was happening with Jesus here because children were just sort of expendable. And Jesus says, let the little children come unto me. But more than that, he says, if any of you cause one of these little ones to stumble, it'd be better for you to have a millstone hung around your neck and be thrown into the sea. That's how much he of ultimate power cares about those in society who had no power. Only the Father had ultimate power. And Jesus sees this dynamic and says, in the kingdom of God, this won't stand. Because here's what's really happening, bringing this back to our own formation. And then I'm done. Here's what's happening. Jesus is actually looking for people with whom he can trust with power. That's what's actually happening here. Have you ever read the end of the book? Matthew 20, I mean, excuse me, Revelation 22, 5 says, and this is what's gonna happen. You're gonna rule and reign with him forever and ever in the new heavens and the new earth. Did you catch that? Rule and reign. You are gonna have power. What if he gives you a few planets to oversee? See, he's actually creating people who he can trust with power because his goal for us is not just simply to go to heaven when we die and sit on a harp, singing holy, 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 sit on a harp, sit on a cloud playing a harp. (laughs) But it's actually to work with him. But again, this shouldn't surprise us. What's the first part of the book say? Adam and Eve, come work with me in my new creation. That's the first part of the book. What's the last part of the book? It's the same calling. God's creating a people who will be his cooperative friends. 
who will work with him in what he's up to. And to do that, we need power. We're called to do his work by his power. So formation in Christ means, in part, that we increasingly take on his character and live in his power to minister good and defeat evil in all the connections of earthly existence. Marriages, families, workplace. So how? Whoever wants to be great among you should be your servant, giving as Jesus did. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. The same Paul said, Christ crucified the wisdom and power of God. That's what that table tells us every weekend. Christ crucified the wisdom and the power of God. Amen.